Hi, my name is Charlie Palmer, and you are listening to Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We then speak to the producers of those ingredients and talk about their history, how they're made, and why chefs love using them in their restaurants. Wah, wah, wah. You know what that Alert. is, that's the, uh, that's the warning. That's the vegan warning. If you don't eat meats or proteins, animal proteins, you may not want to listen to this episode, right? Go back to your other favorite Ingredient Insiders episode. This is, yeah, this, yes, is, this the is, be- is not your episode. This is the beef episode, and we are going to be talking all about steaks and cuts of beef, and I couldn't be more thrilled. And we've got a legend joining us in a couple minutes, Charlie Palmer. Oh, I cannot wait to talk to him. He, I mean, John, tell us about a little bit about his accolades. You know, he started um, really, I think, kind of, you know, going to the top, if you will, in the chef world in the 80s Yeah, well, let's in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Well, right now we're in Healdsburg, California, mm-hmm. which is, you know, his, you know, one of his ventures outside of New York. But this is a New York chef. I mean, he's he's a New Yorker. He, I think he flies every week to go see like the New York Giants play football. Um, Charlie has restaurants all over the United States, as you mentioned. He really, his claim to fame in the late 1980s, opened a restaurant in New York City called Oriole mm-hmm. um, and just got huge accolades for that. But he has worked at some of the greatest restaurants in the country. He was on the, uh, you know, he was on an episode with Julia Child of Cooking with Master Chefs in, you know, the mid 1990s. He's been on every great television program that has to do with food, and he's just, you know, he's a legend. And he is especially passionate about beef and steaks. Um, He takes a lot of pride in what he's serving in his restaurants, and he takes a lot of care when it comes to sourcing his beef. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, we're here in, you know, Healdsburg, California at his restaurant, Dry Creek Kitchen. And, you know, you read it on their, even on their website, their passion for ensuring that the beef is, you know, coming from the best quality uh, producers. Um, they're also, you know, they have an, a beautiful wine cellar, obviously. They're in Sonoma County. Yeah. So, Talking to him, I think we're going to learn quite a bit about beef. Yeah. And then we're also going to talk to our very own Harris Heckelman, who is, he runs the beef program at Chef's Warehouse and Allen Brothers. And he kind of grew up in the industry. um, Going back, his grandparents were were in the beef industry, you know, and, and he's just so energetic and he's so much fun. So I can't wait to talk to Harris a little bit about the specifics of Allen Brothers beef. Yeah, I mean, he Harris sets us up for success at Chef's Warehouse. You know, he's making sure that all of the beef that we are selling to our customers is, you know, properly aged, it's properly tenderized. The marbling is going to be, you know, amazing and everything is going to be consistent. So that is key and that is Harris's job. So to talk yeah. to him and learn about, you know, how we're making uh, these choices and decisions at Allen Brothers pretty cool. Let's talk about, you used that word a second ago, marbling. Marbling. Tell everybody, what is marbling? So marbling is technically- it's Is in- that the game you play with the little balls? <laughs> with the balls, yeah. No. So marbling is the intermuscular fat. So when you go to the grocery store and you see a steak, I mean, for me, I remember, John, my mom would take me to you know food shopping as a kid. Yes. And- She doesn't do that anymore? No. Okay. Um, 
and we would, you know, we would get to the the meat the meat counter or section, and she would be like, pick the one that's the brightest red. Uh huh. Because in that to her meant it was the freshest. Right. So she, you know, London broil or you know like flank steak. Yes. And then it would be like shoe leather. Right. Because it had no intermuscular fat. It had no marbling. So when you go to the counter and you see a piece of meat that has all those white streaks throughout, yes. that is a sign of a well-marbled steak that is going to give you a really um, delightful eating experience. Got it. So more flavorful. Yep. More tender. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Think so- about it. When it cooks, right, the intermuscular fat it melts, and that's what's going to create a tender steak. Right. So, and now that marbleization or marbleization score is directly related to how the beef is graded in the United mm-hmm. States. So, yeah, right. So, cho- so when select. you hear, yeah, so when you hear USDA prime beef, what does that mean? It means that it has the highest level of intermuscular fat that is out there at that time, and it's a very small percentage of it is. the. The product that's out in the marketplace. Absolutely, some you know this is done uh, you know weekly. So every week we get reports on the percentage of prime beef that's in the market. Some weeks there's only two percent prime beef. Wow, that little. Yeah, some there's four. There's and but then you know you'll have a great week where there's ten percent. So so USDA prime in the U.S. that's the highest level that our government, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, will grade beef. What's below that? Choice. Choice. Okay. And so that is a little bit less marbleization, but still a really amazing piece of meat. And even at Allen Brothers, um, we have an upper two-thirds choice program. So we are even taking the the choice and picking the best of the best. So visually kind of selecting the best that came out of that, because obviously this is not a perfect science. No, of course not. It's a visualization score and something they're looking at the piece of beef. And then what's below... Choice. Select. Select. Okay. So that might be for, um, you know, if if you're not looking for the, the most amazing, most tender steak, there is a place for select in, in the market. Um, sometimes, you know, you'll see fillets even because they don't have a lot of fat. You might not need a prime fillet. Um, so a lot of the times, you know, big catering events, you know, we will, uh, you know, we talk about select beef in that in that world. It's also known as a bronze fillet. Got it. So there's a big price difference, I imagine, between something that's select versus something that's choice versus the creme de la creme, Absolutely. which is the prime. Yeah, and you have to make choices based on what's best for your restaurant. Awesome. Yeah. Can you find prime beef at the regular supermarket or does that really go to the restaurants and you know special butcher shops? I think it, it depends really on your, on your market. 100%. You're going to Whole Foods, you're going to a Wegmans, you will find prime beef. But um, you got to look for that marking. Yeah. It'll be marked on the package, USDA prime. Yes, and if you're USDA looking at choice. it and it doesn't have those white streaks and it says prime, I wouldn't buy it. Interesting. Okay. Make There's sure that you trust little, your butcher. Look, Andrea's shopping tips. Yeah. Well, this and is going to be an amazing word. episode. We've got a living legend, Chef Charlie Palmer, and then Harris Heckelman, a legend in the making. Talking all about beef. Awesome. Can't wait. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios in New York City. The California tour continues. We are in beautiful Healdsburg, California today with a, Andrea, a Hall of of Famer. Hall of Famer. 
right? Legend, Legend of American yeah. Cuisine. Founder of the Charlie Palmer Collective, Chef Charlie Palmer. So nice to be here. Welcome. Dry Creek Kitchen. We're in this beautiful space. I think we should, I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. There's hundreds and hundreds of bottles of wine. When you walk through the courtyard, there's grapevines everywhere. It's just, it's beautiful. Charlie, check her bag on the way out because Andrea may have a bottle of I, something. I, I have know, sticky fingers. A screaming Eagle was looking at her. I was going to say, but she wouldn't have any Screaming Eagle because every single bottle of wine on this property is is grown in Sonoma. Oh, wow. You know, some people don't know that, but Dry Creek Kitchen from inception, uh, my dream and my goal was to have the most the largest, most comprehensive collection of Sonoma bottlings in existence. So I think today we have somewhere in a neighborhood of 690 to 740 selections on the list. We, we, we represent every varietal that's grown in Sonoma County, um, I think. You know, I could be missing one or two, but I think. And really, it's our goal to represent, you know, the wines of Sonoma County, you know, even though I love Napa wines, and of course we have lots of things going on in Napa too, and other in other wine regions in the world. But you know, being in Healdsburg and being in North Sonoma County, I think is a very special thing. And and you know what we should do here, wine wise, should represent that very well. And the and the winemakers, the vineyards, the wine growers, which is a new term, maybe everyone hasn't heard. People don't grow grapes here; they grow wine. You know, so they're yeah. wine growers, not grape growers. So, I mean, I've, I've been corrected by many uh, a rancher, you know, say I'm a wine grower, not a grape grower. So You're a New Yorker. I am. Yeah. Native New Yorker. We're From gonna, upstate, right? We're going to go into yeah. your history. We're going to go deep there. But I'm curious, what brought you to California in 2006? Is that when you, that's what I think we read? Uh, you came two, out here. Uh, 2004. Okay. okay. Yeah. And really, it was a, it was a pact that I made with my wife Lisa when we got married. We said in ten years, and we were both from New York City or New York, and uh, in ten years we're going to live somewhere else. We'll always have a home in New York City, which we currently do, of course. Anyways, moved here to raise our kids in a rural environment, which sounds like a great story, but it's really not true. It was, it's a selfish thing on my part, I think, more than anything else. That I was at the point where I could live anywhere, you know because I was flying to you know, Vegas and, and, and out here and, and doing different things uh, business-wise. So it was a question of where do we want to live? And I think, you know, we looked all over. We were in Napa. We were specifically in the wine country because I had so many relationships, really. Mm-hmm. And it's so much about agriculture. You know, there's very few piece, very few places, I think, in the world mm-hmm. that have as much bounty of not just, you know, not just grapes, not just produce, but... You know, Sonoma County, for instance, is producing incredible artisanal cheeses. Um, Petaluma used to be the poultry capital of California um, and still has, you know, a lot of artisanal producers of every type of poultry, uh, lamb. Uh, We're going to talk about beef yeah. today, too. So, yes, th- yeah. there's beef production here as well. So, like, you know, I grew up in upstate New York, which obviously it was a dairy farming community at that point. Some of that's changed to, to beef cattle, but... But from an from agricultural standpoint, there was, you know, the growing season is very short in upstate New York, right? Or New Jersey or that kind of thing. We're out here. It's so much different. Yeah. Do you feel like as a chef making the decision to come to California, like how 
Did you change the way you cook? Did you change the way that you approached ingredients or approached a menu? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, if anything, if one term describes it, it broadens your, you know, your horizons uh, because everything truly is at your back door. I mean, we, you know, everybody talks about like farm to table and everything and it's become like, you know, whatever, but it really is true here. I mean, you know, (laughs) on any given day, you have somebody bringing tomatoes to the back door or mushrooms from Occidental or whatever. Yeah. We were walking through an apple farm this morning and they had all these herbs surrounding it. And John said to me, if you live in California, you never need to buy herbs because you just oh, everybody like, grows herbs. Yeah. I mean, just like yeah. go pick them. And yeah. it's so different. I mean, you know, we live on the East Coast and, you know, everything is like a purchase. You have to, you know, call and then they sure. have to get it. So it's such a different, you know, mentality. Do you find that when you're back in New York now and there's you see produce and you're like, oh, mm. gosh, I, if I was back in California, I could have these perfect tomatoes. Yeah. You know, in some ways, but then you have like, you know, you have like the Jersey tomatoes. As right. We just, we Which just, are great. that mm-hmm. season just, just kind of, you know, going away. But, um, you know, there's some great things. Yeah. Jersey corn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of bounty there, but again, the growing season is so much different. And that kind of thing. East coast fish is different. You know, that's a, that's a big thing here that I think, you know, took me a little while to like think about it, but you know, our goal at Drakery Kitchen is really to kind of source from within 30 mile radius. So you have, you know, you have the Pacific coastline, you know, so, but yeah, that means king salmon, lingcod, you know, some pretty great crab, usually things like that, but different oysters, for instance, Yep. great oysters, but different, different than East coast. Sure. Was this a very different place in 2004? I mean, was this incredibly, yeah, yeah, incredibly different. I mean, this is a small town, still is a small town, but I think, you know, when I first came here, I mean, we were really the first like big deal restaurant kind of thing. And, you know, it was, it, it took some time to, you know, get people to understand what we were trying to do and that kind of thing. And of course with the hotel and, and then subsequently the two more hotels and, and now it's, it's a much different place almost you know, 20 years later. So for sure. All right, let's take a trip down memory lane here yeah. because we don't often get to sit with legends <laughs> and, you grew up in upstate New York. Yes, I did. You went to the CIA back in the day before it was this cool thing for tattooed young kids who didn't really know how much work was ahead of them in life to go to. Um, and then, from my understanding, you met Jean-Jacques Rochot at Le Lavendue before he'd even opened Le Cote Basque. Yes, yeah. I was introduced to Jacques at uh, Le Lavendue. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Jean- Jean-Jacques Rochot was, uh, you know, legendary French chef in New York City. Still is. Talked to him last week. Okay. And still is. (laughs) He's fishing on Long Island, by the way. Amazing. And so many amazing chefs came out of that La Copas kitchen. What was it like? You know, how did, you know, because we have a lot of young chefs who listen to this program. Sure. Who, you know, they know who Charlie Palmer is, but they don't know what it took to become Charlie Palmer. Mm. What were the early days like? You, You know, our good friend, Frank Crispo was cooking alongside you. Who else was in that kitchen, and what was it like in working in that environment? Well, it, it was pretty amazing. I I I started at uh, Le Cote Basque when I was, you know, I just turned twenty, and um, when I came from the CIA, I went to the CIA pretty young, and you know, it was a it was a group of like uh, I don't know, probably half of the group were American chefs, most of them from the CIA. American cooks, I should say, because, you know, we were all very young and very ambitious, but we were not, I wouldn't say chefs yet. 
Um, and then the other half were like more, uh, you know, traditional classical French cooks, you know, that, and, and chefs that were, you know, in New York for a long time. So it was, a, it was kind of a nice mix. But I think uh, Jean-Jacques, I think early on understood, you know, the, the, the change that was happening and, and what was, you know, what was to become of a French cuisine in New York City. You know, because you had you know, Le Côte Basque, you had Le Cine, you had Le Chantilly, you had uh, Le Cirque, um, you know, and it, it, it really kind of, everybody said this, when, when you started there, you kind of were into the French mafia, you know, <laughs> like, for instance, I was, a, I was the, at one point I was a poissonnier or the fish cook at a Côte Basque in the daytime. And I would literally run to 57th street, uh, which is only a couple blocks away yeah. to work as a poissonnier at Le Chantilly at night, because a lot of the French guys would go on vacation for not, you know, a couple of weeks, but like six, eight weeks in the summer. And the menus were virtually interchangeable. So I was cooking, you know, uh, I was, you know, sauteing Dover sole and grilling Dover sole, like <laughs> in one place in the morning and the same thing at night. So it was kind of, but it was kind of neat. And, you know, all the personalities and the things that came out of that. But, you know. You went from there to the River Cafe? No, actually, I went from uh, Cote Basque. I, I was lured to a small country club in Westchester called Wakabuck. Oh, sure. So I was at Wakabuck Country Club for uh, just a little over a year. And, uh, uh, which was which was fun because it was a bunch of executives from Union Carbide at the time, and they said, "Look, if you come and cook at our country club, it was a small country club, a very top top elite kind of thing. Um, you can do whatever you want. You know, we don't want country club food. We want you to cook you know, your food, cook whatever you yeah, you way like ahead of their time. Yeah, way ahead of their time. That's amazing. But what what was that next? Like the the decision to take that like first executive chef job at River Cafe, like." To leave the country club, well, chef life. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was introduced. I had actually I knew Buzzy O'Keefe before that, but I was connected with Buzzy through Mark Sarazen, senior, and and uh, because Buzzy was looking for the next uh, young American chef, you know, specifically, and um, I guess my name came up in conversation a few times. And uh, Buzzy O'Keefe, the legendary, yeah, Buzzy, owner, founder of River Cafe, mm-hmm. and Mark Sarazen. Uh, DeBraga meets in New York City. Yeah, DeBraga, great, Spiller, great yeah. purveyor. Yeah. So River Cafe, then 1988, East yeah, 61st well, Street, yeah. Oriole. I was a chef at the River Cafe for three and a half, all going on four years, and you know, quite successful. And and I said to Buzzy at the time, I said, "Look, Buzzy, I'm either either you have to make me a partner, or I have to go do my own thing and whatever." Because I, I love the River Cafe, I still do. I still tell Buzzy every time I see him, which is quite often, that I am the heir apparent. You know, that, you know, one day when you decide, you know, you know, River Cafe should be in someone else's hands, I should be the guy. Of course, he laughs and says no, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, I, I put together uh, a business plan and I wanted to I wanted to open a restaurant um, that was... You know, I always described it as like the American Lutes. And what does that mean? That means I want it to be in the same arena as uh, Lutes and the Côte Basque and, you know, like the, the, the great French restaurants. Because at that time, it was still, it was still, you know, French restaurants were still considered the best, you know, restaurants in New York, I think, in most cities. Um, I want it to be in a certain area. I said, uh, you know, the, the location has to be between. 59th and 72nd it has to be between, be 
between Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue, and it has to be in a townhouse. So that was the criteria. So I went out and I had a couple of different business partners, you know, that that I talked to, and then uh, and then Steve Zolas and Nicola, probably more than Steve, but Nicola Cazzoni, that they owned uh, Il Cantanori. Il Cantanori. So they owned okay. Il Cantanori, yeah. and they had a couple of things. But anyways, so Steve came and said, I have I have four townhouses that we can choose from. So the idea was we're going to buy this building, turn it into a restaurant and do whatever, you know, with the upper floors and uh, that would be it. So we chose the one on 61st Street. Uh, we bought the building. We I was the general contractor. It's the dumbest thing I ever did. But, you know, <laughs> I was convinced that I needed to build my own restaurant, you know. Uh, but, you know, when you're 27 and. That's the dream. Yeah, there's, you know, there's nothing to lose, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> Every single dime I had went into that restaurant. But it was great, you know, and we got it built. It was incredibly successful from day one. And, uh, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. But, uh, but yeah, it was good. And then we're talking about beef today. You opened Charlie Palmer Steak. Yeah, I opened the first Charlie Palmer Steak in, in Vegas. Yeah, just because of a coincidence, I had opened Oreo Las Vegas and the the GM at that time that, that was at the Four Seasons, which is part of Mandalay Bay, which is, you know, it's a hotel within a hotel kind of thing, for those that don't know. But came to me and said, look, we have this first floor restaurant, like every Four Seasons property at that point, they have, they had a higher end restaurant, then they had the three meal a day restaurant, you know, kind of that formula. So they came, he came to me and said, like, I forget what it was called, this restaurant, they'd been open for a year and it was just, you know, it lost a million dollars in the first year in operations. So said, like, would you take this space or take this and, and do something there? And I said, this is where we need to do a steakhouse. Because you know? I'd always wanted to. I'd wanted to do what I call a modern American steakhouse. You know, because everybody's like, well, what does that mean? Well, what that means it's not a classical or traditional steakhouse. It's very uh, forward, uh, let's say, especially from a, from a menu and a cuisine standpoint. Is this where you had that wall of wine... Was that was that the, with the wine angels on wires? Well, Oreo, Las that Vegas. was Oreo. Okay. Yeah, it still does. I mean, Andrew, you had yeah. to see this, or you have to see it. Yeah, they have the sommeliers or the the wine folks. They're still doing this, where they have like wires on them, and they we would have, go up and oh, down in this. the yes, air yes. Yeah, the, the, to get the bottle. Yes. They're called wine angels. The wine angels. And the whole idea was Adam Tahani, who designed the restaurant with me. We we had this incredible collection of wine. It, it was um, just amazing. I mean, one of the greatest collections in the world from one of the owners of that time, which was Mandalay Gaming. And he wanted to do something with this wine. And he wanted to, you know, put it. So first, the opening list, we, the opening wine list and inventory, we had 38,000 bottles. Wow. Um, every first growth Bordeaux in the 1900th vintage. Unobtainable. Even at auction. No one, no one could get this, right? Uh, but we had just just incredible wines, but we had to display this somehow. You know, we had to like, you know, make it make it feel like it's accessible to people. You know, because the whole stigma around wine, especially in you know French restaurants, if you think about it, and the deep, dark, mysterious cellar. Intimidating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's put it out in front of everybody. And it was like, you know, it's it's basically a four story glass enclosed cube that displays these wines. I mean, it's spectacular. And, yeah, it's amazing. And it's accessed by the wine angels who are all have acrobatic backgrounds oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, fly, literally fly up in the tower. It's 10 seconds from, from, 
you know, base ground floor to the top, which is 42 feet. Um, each bin is numbered, you know, you know, they have a little earpiece or a little, little microphone. Like tells them where to go? A little earpiece. The sommeliers that are on the floor have a microphone in their tie. And so they'll just say it's, uh, you know, bottle 2207. All what they know is it's side two, bin 207. They fly to 207, pull the bottle. On wires. Yeah. But opening a steakhouse then and even I feel like there's this like progression of the beef industry that we're constantly yes. kind of going through. And I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. What was it like then and what is it like now and where do you kind of see it going? Well, you know, I think, you know, beef and, and lots of meats, but beef in general. I mean, I think there's there's such a, uh, you know, cloud that hangs over the beef industry and, you know, who's doing it right, who's not doing it right, you know, how are, how are things being done, and how the animal's being raised, how is it being treated. Aging of beef is a big, you know, you know, dry aging of beef. This wet is, aging. Yeah, wet aging, right, which is like, what is wet aging? It's just right? sitting in a cryovac bag. Right, yeah. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I just, I just I just wrote this article, you know, for this like what is wet aging? Well, you know, it's it's a it's a myth, you know. It's like it's like a term that whatever, but a, but dry aging, I think it's one thing that like the public doesn't understand, even the most educated person. They don't understand that, you know, when you're when you're dry aging, if you're doing it correctly and you're, you know, aging whatever size, you know, primal piece of beef it is for a short line, any short line cut or whatever. You know, you're losing, if it's 28 days age, you're losing almost, you know, 18 to 20% of the weight of that. You know, what does that do? It's just water weight that's it's evaporating. Right. It evaporates right. as it dries out. But, you know, that's why I explain to people, that's why, first of all, aged beef is more expensive, right? Because you're losing 20% of that, you know, so the price just keeps going up. And then you're going to trim. There's a lot of trim to be taken off of it because, you know, it's and creating that cap, yep. you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that there. So there's... Let's say it's another four or five or six percent, you know, but the big thing is like people won't really think, do I love dry aged beef, you know, and that that nuttiness or that, you know, that intense umami that comes from really taking water weight out. Right. So take out water weight. You can you, you concentrate flavor. And yes, the enzymes break it down. It tenderizes whatever. But it's really it's about, you know, you know, that shrinkage you know, intensifying flavor. And that's why it's so good, right? And that's why it's really, you know, for some people, it's like the only thing they want to eat. But there's a lot of people that don't understand it. And they're like, oh, geez, it tastes, um, you know, it tastes a little uh, off or something. Like, it's like cheesy blue cheese. Or right. cheesy or irony yeah. or uh-huh. too you minerally. Know, funky. You know. Yeah. Is there a specific type of beef? I mean, we talk about specifically at Chef's Warehouse. I think we have everything under the sun at this point. We've got of course, the USDA Prime in it from America. We have Japanese beef now. We've the got snow aged Wagyu. We've got that. We've got dry aged. We've got wet aged. We've got Brant beef from California. We're in California, which is a Holstein cattle, which is a dairy cattle, very different yep. than a lot of other beef. Is there a favorite type of beef for you? Um, is there something that the Charlie Palmer restaurants kind of lean towards as far as flavor and type? I, well, I mean, I think it's for us, I want to offer. I want to offer different options, you know, and I think I want to offer people the ability to not only eat what they want and what they like, but also to maybe discover something new and different, you know, and I think that's, and, and it, you know, at this point it's so complex and it's so like explaining to someone, this is, this is hundred uh, percent grass fed beef, grass you know. fed corn finish. There's right. 
so many ways that I think they're marketing almost yeah, sure. it to everybody. Yeah. And I would love to know your opinion on corn fed versus grass fed and <laughs> that, all of that. I a have lot a lot of, of it's opinions. Who's doing it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> What's the corn? You know, you know, the, you know, I, I probably am much deeper into this than most chefs because, you know, I, I was responsible for one of the first Piedmontese bulls ever brought from Italy with, with your boss. Right. You know, Chris Can you Pappas. tell us what that is? A Piedmontese is a double muscled animal uh, from, you know, mostly from Italy, uh, northern Italy. And the white blood cell count, for whatever reason, is genetic, is incredibly high. Which makes um, and it's not it's not a heavy fat cap that you know on the, on the carcass itself, but it's double muscled, so you get a lot of you know, you know weights, you know body weight, you know, and, and when you slaughter the the animal, you, the, the weight is incredible. Um, but it's it's super healthy, and I mean, there's there's so many people doing so many good things now with beef. You're thinking about the cow versus getting a steak in a box. I think that's there's been this uh, extreme shift. And I know even in the last 10 years, that's been a huge change at Chef's Warehouse. And we've purchased a lot of meat companies, you know, Allen Brothers and Del Monte. And I think, you know, we've gotten an education from yeah. those acquisitions and learned a lot about animal husbandry and how it's important to, you know, yeah. treat the cow with respect and um, feed it the right things. And to your point, so. Yeah. And, and it goes right down the line because, you know, you're talking about the processors. Right. You know, the distributors, how it's handled, what's, you know, what all phases of the game kind of thing. And it makes a big difference, you know, in the quality. Do you like grass-fed beef? Uh, to an extent. Yeah. To an extent. But um, but you're never going to you're never going to get that intermuscular, you know, you know, fatty, you know, kind of content from yeah. grass-fed beef. Is it healthier? Yeah. Sorry. No, I read this article recently that said that even though it's healthier, I'm putting this in air quotes, it's actually, it's, it's not as good for the environment because the cows actually right. produce more methane yep. eating grass. <laughs> so it's like, you know, what are you, which one are you going to choose? Burping cows. Right. You're going to, are hurting the environment? Are you, are you, uh, you know, eating a better product for yourself? I, you know, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Those discussions always seem to go back and forth and yeah. come full circle. What I'd like to know is, do you have a favorite cut of beef? Is there a steak a that one. you love? Are you a ribeye guy? Are you a strip guy? You know, I would say in recent recent years, um, I've become much more interested in secondary cuts. You know, and I think that's when you when we talk about responsibility and you know yeah. where things are going. You know, and it's all marketing, right? You know, because we you know there's a cut called the Terrace Major that's on you know comes basically from the top sirloin kind of thing, but. But it's an incredibly flavorful, no matter what animal is coming from, uh, flavorful cut, whatever. But it's hard to, you know, it's hard to sell someone, you know, in the restaurant. Oh, you know, do you want to have a terrace major? In fact, I opened a restaurant not, you know, too long ago in Denver, Colorado, and it was all it was based only on secondary cuts. And it was interesting because people are like, well, I'll try that, I'll try that, I'll try that, and not, not, you know, not the the flank steaks or that kind of thing, but you know. Uh, they call it different different places, like a tri-tip. Out in California sure. here, everybody, everybody eats tri-tip, right? Like bouvette. Yeah, I think it's important yeah. for us to define this, though. Mm -hmm. there, so there's primals, which everybody knows. Filet yes. mignon, ribeyes, New York strips, right? And as yeah. our mm -hmm. you know meat gurus at, at Chef's Warehouse will always tell us, it's very easy to sell those three cuts yeah. of beef because they're the creme de la creme. 
what Charlie's talking about is these secondary cuts that are can be really delicious. Yeah. And you, and there's a whole animal that needs to be utilized. And I love the fact that, you know, that there's a focus and you had a restaurant dedicated to that. Yeah. No, and it was, it was great. I mean, unfortunately, it was a software company that wanted the whole building in the lease. So it <laughs> wasn't bad for me, but it was like, uh, but it was like, you know, if you look at beef production and whatever, like how much ground beef can you make? You know, or, you know, stew meat, as they call that. Like in the old days, it was always, oh, that's stew meat. Like, yeah. Well, what, what's also been interesting to see is those off cuts and those secondary cuts have become now very prized and very, like beef cheeks. Oh, you beef know, cheeks. Used to be a giveaway, right? Yeah. Yep. Chucktail flap. Yep. Now that's boneless short rib. Yeah. So you're like, <laughs> you, you don't, you, you wouldn't order it, but. Right. When yeah. it's called a short rib, you're definitely going to order it. Yeah. Now it's a boneless short rib. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, it's similar in texture and everything, mm-hmm. and, you know, close, close to the same part in, of the animal. So. In California, this may sound like a silly question, and it's more of a climate question. Do you cook beef differently than you do in New York? Because you don't get the cold winters where braising and like these really rich wine sauces and uh, different things are utilized. Is can you go? Can you do that here? You can. I mean, it, again, the seasons are different, it's shorter. But you know, it gets cold here. Seasonal cooking is a big part of what I think is is California cooking. You know, that root vegetables and all the things you're, you're just talking about, like braises and you know, kind of that you know nourishing. You know, uh, whether it's polentas or risottos or things like that that you think about in the winter. You know, stick to your ribs. And, and, Hard, you know, yeah, that's a good stews one. Stews done in a more modern yeah. way, like we do this really cool blanca de veau, but it's it's sort of unrec- it's not recognizable. Like Jean Jacques would kill me if he saw this. You know, but he'd love it. He'd taste it, love it, <laughs> but he'd be like, "That's not a blanquette. You know, but uh, you know, it's just a different way of approaching it and stuff. You know, that's what food should be, right? Yeah. Should be very subjective. But you know, there's a lot of things of have benefited from the marketing behind it, but are they really delivering something great? I don't think so. How do you feel about Japanese Wagyu beef? Uh, fantastic. I mean, I think it's, I think it's super interesting. Um, you know, I'm involved in a project right now that I think if I had had my choice, I would, I would probably choose some of the American Wagyu crossbreed, you know, cause that's what it all is right at this point. You know, so we have, I have a very good friend. We have uh, 500 head of uh, red Angus that's going to be crossbred with Wagyu. And I think if you're seeing what's, you know, what's happening in that world, you know, because more and more and more and, you know, what you're doing is producing an animal where all these secondary cuts, for instance, are as tender and usable as the primals. Interesting. And, yeah. and that's the big difference huh? you know, for everybody including the rancher because I that's mean, fantastic. my big concern is always that and I know this from my farming days you know the the, the farmer the rancher they're the last one they don't, they don't get any you know I mean the yeah. price per 100 pound of milk in this country is probably the same as it was in 1980 seriously I mean yeah. it's like it's crazy right um, so you know the, the 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 prices the raise in prices and stuff you know maybe after pandemic there's a little bit more of that cuz it feeds more expensive and whatever, but it's the, you know, that farmer, that rancher is not, you know, it's not a windfall for them. That's for sure. It's even like 
when you talk, we were talking a little bit before about supply chain and, you know, it's like the trucking, it's getting the, the cattle. It's, yes. it, it's, and that's through the roof and that has to be passed on to feed, right? Yeah. Fuel processing. Yeah. All of it. Okay. So do you do a lot of cooking at home? I do. So what are the five? It's sporadic though. Okay. But I feel like there's probably like five to, you know, eight ingredients that you have to have in your pantry or your, kind of like your favorite pantry staples. What would, what the would they be? Haves. Yes. Um, caviar. Oh, nice. Wow. I eat a lot of caviar more than my share, fair share. I John and I right are now. always available yeah. to come over for a meal. What, what else? White truffles? <laughs> no, 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 no. Truffles in season, but caviar, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just into you know, snacking on caviar. Okay. That's one good that's one. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. I, we, my wife and I, we bake all the time. We have like a, a sourdough. We do a pendelavan. It's uh, it's supposedly I don't know if it's really true that the mother or the you know the lavan, the actual mm-hmm. you know sponge, came from Poilin in Paris. Nice. It was smuggled out by a friend of a friend. All right. So sourdough starter is going to be in your pantry or fridge? Always. It's always in there. Wow. Okay. This is a and unique it, one. And in fact, it's you know when I'm traveling, which is a lot of the time. Our uh, our housekeeper Sonia, she she feeds. Just to feed it. <laughs> That's amazing. Number one, take care of our baby. When the fires were happening, the 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 thing that I was most concerned about because we got evacuated, I was like, "Where are we gonna? I gotta take this starter. Where are we gonna take the starter? You know, <laughs> right. like, <laughs> Leave the family photo yeah. albums. Get that starter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was good. That didn't go over well with the mom, <laughs> the mother. All right, so that's two. Two. What else? Um, Great champagne. I'm really into champagne these days. Wow. This is... I love this We produce Pinot. I'm a Pinot guy. But, you know, I've always been a champagne guy. But uh, we're we're working on actually a a, a sparkling wine project here in California. But we're all all partnership with a champagne house in France. So... Nice. Champagne. What else? Uh, Good cheeses. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always into good cheeses. Okay. And around here, it's like girls over there and Sebastopol and stuff, you know, there's just amazing cheeses. Cabo Cream, he's got tons of great cheeses. Yeah. But, so good. But there's also a lot of small producers that are doing great stuff. You know, what else? Uh, that's about it. That's pretty good. Yeah. I think uh, whenever you want Andrea and I to come over for dinner, we'd be happy to have mm-hmm. uh, I haven't, I haven't some made, bread with caviar and champagne. I haven't dry pasta in, in forever because uh, I have my uh, Acropolano pasta at home, yeah. Struder. And it's so easy, you know, it's like you make some fresh pasta. It's like, who doesn't like that? Right? It's like, you know, fresh pasta. You got some butter. You got some good, you know, Reggiano Parmigiano. All right. So he's making us pasta with caviar and yeah, champagne. Yeah, caviar say, yeah. on there. Great. We have tons of citrus fruit. So we do just like this, mm. you know, pasta limoni. Very excited. Right, thanks again, Charlie. Thank you. So nice to be here. That's good. Thanks. Another wonderful day here. We're in Las Vegas. Woo! And uh, the sun is shining. Beautiful here. here. We're here for the Chef's Warehouse Las Vegas Expo, and we have a very special guest today. He's usually very, like, hard to tap down. He's traveling around the world. He could be at a Wagyu beef ranch in Australia, or he could be somewhere in the Dakotas looking at Angus cattle. And the next day he's in New York City meeting with our all of our customers. Yeah, like super Michelin star chefs. So the man of the hour, the person we're here talking to is 
the executive vice president of the Chef's Warehouse Protein Division, which basically means anything that has to do with beef, lamb, veal, any of the proteins. Harris. This is the guy, Harris Heckelman. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so Thanks good to be here. here. I'm so glad. we. I can't believe we were able to get him I to, know. in one place at the same time. So, Harris, talk to us about Allen Brothers, because this is a company that the Chef's Warehouse acquired almost 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago, 2012. And it's got a long storied history. It's known for this amazing beef. Tell us about it. Like, what is Allen Brothers? Yeah, so, Allen Brothers has been around since 1893. Uh, it is the oldest meat company still in business. And the foundation was in the old stockyards of Chicago. And uh, the founder um, was all about the best meat from the best plants, cutting beautiful steaks that we trimmed to extreme uh, levels just to really pull it out of a, a package and put it on, on, on the grill. And, um, you know, Allen Brothers, what we're unique for is we, we wet age our beef and we dry age our beef. So for those that don't know the difference, um, so wet aging is meat gets uh, to our building in a cryovac bag and it's gonna sit in a refrigerator. So just think I give you a, a piece of meat, you put it in your cooler and you, and you put it in your refrigerator at home and it sits for five weeks. What is unique about what we do is a lot of people don't age their meat because about cash flow, right? At the end of the day, product has to sit five weeks to really perform minimum. And at, at Allen Brothers and Chef's Warehouse and all of our companies, we're committed to wet aging that product minimum five weeks to ensure the consistency that our customers want. And um, so that's the wet age. So that's important. So instead of sitting on inventory in your restaurant, letting the beef become more flavorful, what happens during yeah, wet aging? I was going to say, when you say consistency, yeah. you know, what, do you, what happens in those five weeks to the beef that is the reason why we do that? Yeah. So, so marbling, right? doesn't change from day one to day 35 to day 50, right? When it, when it leaves the, the packing facility, that, that beautiful white that you see isn't going to change in those days. The marbling is the intermuscular fat. Yep, the intermuscular fat. And what will happen over the next five weeks is that that, that fat inside starts to break down. It's become a more tender steak. So most places, like if you go to a grocery store, a butcher shop, you're going to see that bright red color. That's not what we want, right? Because that bright red means it's maybe 10 to 21 days. And you go to grocery store, most of the time it's a little tough. Yes, a Whole Foods or a Italy or those other, you know, they do what we do and that's, you know, why they're unique. But we want it to break down so that when that steak gets into the chef's hands or the primal and they cut it, it is going to perform. And, you know, it's not just that they have to age it themselves. It's like you don't know from other suppliers how long they're aging it. Right. So that's the biggest thing. So that's why our brand and what we've built, it's about that's our core specs through and through every single day. So that's wet aging. And then talk to us about dry aging. So dry aging is a whole different flavor profile. So we now take, we wet age the meat for 21 days first, which is super important because you want to give it at least three weeks to start to break down some of that, that intermuscular fat. And then you will then take it out of a cryovac. It will then go into a dry aging room. And a dry aging room, you know, there's probably 65 in the country. You know, it's a, you know, there's not that many. I mean, it's very unique. And it could be as big as the room we're in today. It could be, in Allen Brothers, we have five of them. So we have a room that um, is 33 years old. It has been there for a long, long time. And the flavor coming out of there. So what will happen is when you put the meat in the dry age room, 
it will then start to grow. Um, I don't want to word this the best. It's way. almost like a wine cellar that has kind of certain. I don't want to say bacteria, but it's got yeah, things it's like, in the yeah, air yeah, yeah, it, that flavor you, the meat. You've got humidity. You've got. We control all the temperature and the humidity to make sure that it's safe. A hundred percent safe. Yep. But we're basically growing molds onto right. That's really what you do when you dry age. And then when we go to fabricate it, we 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 um we cut all that off to get to the actual steak. But it's a completely different flavor profile. So at Allen Brothers, like there are people that really especially in the northeast they love that funky dry aged flavor it's just what they like so you know i came from uh, a, a meat company before i joined here and our our meat was really funky at that place um but then when i came to allen brothers it was just like this sweet nutty dry age right so when there's customers that need that extra funk we know we got to push our room like if they're buying it from a competitor and they say it's 45 day it might be 65 in my room but what we do is I'm all about our 35, 40, that's sweet, make you feel good. You want to eat the whole steak. You don't want to, you don't want to eat six, eight ounces and be done. So that's the difference between a wet age and a dry age. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, when you talk about Allen Brothers and, and I'm talking to a customer, it's about consistency. It's about sourcing. It's about workmanship and being consistent every time. And, and that's really what, what, I, what we believe in. Yeah, I'm not going to name names, but some of the greatest restaurants in the United States are using this product. Next some, many of the greatest restaurants in the United States use Allen Brothers and they trust it for that consistency. When I go and I've spoken to chefs, it's like they know that if the, they receive an Allen Brothers box, they don't have to look twice. They don't have to worry about weights being off. They don't have to worry about weird cuts and trims. Um, so it, it has such a great reputation. One thing you just mentioned, but I don't want to jump over this, you know, he's very modest. Mm -hmm. You kind of come from a royal beef family. Hey, you grew Talk up to us. in you this grew up industry. In the business. When did you start in the beef industry? Yeah, so so my family has been in the meat business since 1966. Um, so my grandfather founded a business called Buckhead Beef, uh, and then sold to Cisco. And then him and my uncle founded um, Halpern's, and then was sold to Gordon Food Service. Uh, I always I laugh about it today, but I never thought I'd be in this business, right? I um, my other side of my family had a little glove and safety business in New Jersey. You know, and it, it did well. And I always said, oh, I'm going to go to college and play football and I'm going to go sell gloves and hard hats. And, uh, you know, my life took me a different way. And uh, I joined uh, Halpern's when I was 19 and uh, worked my way through the through the company and and uh, got an opportunity to meet Chris and John. And and we were able to build this this thing we're building today. And the sky's the limit. Fantastic. So I think another thing that makes it unique, the Allen Brothers program, is that, you know, we're, it's not like we are going out and buying it from another company and then we are selling it to our customers. We own the brand. We work directly with the ranches. Correct. And I think that's really unique to our customers, you know, for them to know that, you know, we are doing that for them. We are like going above and like doing that step so they can. And you said it, John, like you can trust in what we're doing. And I think that's really important for a chef when they place their order, that they trust that we are going to deliver every single time. Where does Allen Brothers Beef come from primarily? So we buy from eight core packing plants all in the Midwest. Um, but then we have our private label program that comes from a small uh, farm, you know, farm and farmers around there in, in South Dakota. Um, you know, our biggest thing, you know, and it was like the dinner I had last night, we want to be with the right partners that understand the vision of Allen Brothers, right? 
our job is to give the best product. It's the same way you know, Chris and John built Chef's Warehouse. But that, doesn't, that means we're going to be more expensive, right? But, but, but that still means we're going to be the best. So the dinner last night was finding the next little guy that he might be selling Cisco today and getting beat up on price tomorrow. But we'll, we'll pay you more for the premium because we value that cattle. We understand that our clientele of customers want the best because they're going to charge a lot of money for that steak. So um, that's, that's what we have to continue to get better as an organization. And the best thing about Chef's Warehouse Protein Division is that we've got all these meat and seafood companies that we know how to leverage. And, uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Let's talk for a sec about grading. Uh, the USDA has a grading system where I'm sure everybody who's listening to this knows about prime and choice and select. Talk to us a little bit about that and what's going on in that because I know there's been, you know, availability for prime product is not easy to get these days. Yeah, it's, it's so, so for those of you who don't know the grading system, so there's USDA prime beef, there is upper choice beef, there's USDA choice, there's USDA select, and then there's no roll ungraded. Um, the USDA prime grade last week was 9%. So that's it, pretty high. So of all the cattle that are processed in America, okay. only 9% meet that prime grade. Correct. Wow. And, and 60 days ago, we were less than 7%. And 60 days before that, we were like in the below 5%. What's the reasoning for that? So what's changed? So, you know, people would have that been in the business a long time said it was like three to 5%. It was always much higher, you know, as in that seven to 10 and, you know, depending what plant you go to, it could be even higher. Like the plant, the, the core plants we buy from, even though the industry is nine, they graded 23% last week. Um, so that's why we really try to be with those niche gut, those niche people that raise them the right way. They, that's what they're committed to. Um, but the biggest thing that's changed over the last eight months has been that with the, with the cost of gas and the cost of corn, um, they, they've changed the feed ration. So as an industry, you know, people, you know, farmers don't go raise their beef to say, I want to get a USDA prime beef, right? They get paid on, it's called a, a yield system, Y1 to Y5. So a yield grade and then the marbling grade. So they want to get the biggest animal that's going to yield the best. And that's how they're going to get the most amount of money for that cattle. So the industry is not to try to get prime, it's to get that choice area, which is, you know, that, so that's why prime is so unique. So by them treat, the cattle right now is super heavy. And you would say, oh, they're so heavy, it's that time of year, the grade should be 15% on prime. But because they've changed the feed ration, they're, not, they're just not grading out. Over the last, I would say, decade, grass-fed beef has really, you know, kind of been at the forefront of conversation. And I think there are some things that are, that that are right about what people are saying about it. And I think there's other things about it that are incorrect. And I'd love for you to kind of like debunk yeah. and teach us a little bit about grass fed versus corn fed or corn finished. Yep. So I think that, you know, five years ago, it was all about like farm to table, right? And in everything, it wasn't just beef, right? It was farm to table across the board. And, you know, I think it had its run and it's still there. But um, I think that the marketplace has, has shown that people want the best tasting product. So um, grass-fed beef means that product, you know, an, an animal has never eat anything. It just eats grass. It eats no corn. It has no feed ration. And, and over my 15-year career, I found okay products. You know, there's, there's, there's some better ones than others, and we have it. We sell grass-fed beef for those customers that want to have it. Um, but, you know, it's a couple percent of all that we sell. Um, 
corn-fed beef just means that you know the animal is born they don't just start eating corn day one right i think it's super important it's, this is not what you know th- their bodies can't do that yeah so they they get raised to about seven eight hundred pounds on grass you know with their mom and you know that's what they're living and then they start to get into a corn ration a ration and that's when they put on that's when they go to the you know the, the feedlot and spend their 100 120 days eating it and then they double their size but uh that's corn-fed beef compared to a grass-fed beef. So corn gives it the richness, the fattiness. Correct. Versus, you know, if you don't introduce any corn, it's going to be much more lean, I would say. Very lean. And the flavor profile is very different as well. So corn-fed, it it is going to be buttery and rich and and kind of fatty. And then uh, grass-fed is definitely, I would describe it, I don't know if you feel like this, John, like more minerally, livery, um, you don't have that richness. I've had great grass-fed beef. I certainly have a preference for the corn-fed American Absolutely. beef. Yeah. I think it's the best in the world. Um, but there is good grass-fed beef out there. I agree. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to, like we talked about at the beginning, what, what Allen Brothers and we're about as a company across all of our protein divisions are being with their best partner. So the, the company we buy the grass-fed beef, they actually get some prime grass-fed beef. It's X amount. It's not a crazy amount. And I think it eats pretty well. I do think there is a lot of grass fed beef that eats very minerally mm-hmm. as well. So it's just, you know, it's ultimately what, what it comes down to. Is it graded the same way? Yep. I'm curious as to what everybody's favorite cut of steak is while Ooh. we're sitting here with this, the maestro of beef. Andrew, what's your favorite cut? Uh, I, I like a Kansas city strip, bone in okay. strip. So a New York strip. Yep. With the bone. Got it. Harris. She's a beef girl. I'm the same. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, I, 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 didn't, I was like, Andrew's not going to say filet. No. Uh, but but uh, it's, uh, you know, the best thing to me, you know, I want that buttery. I want that richness. And I, I was always a New York strip guy. And then eventually I had a Kansas City strip. And it's just such a better, because you get the flavor from the bone. So that extra flavor just makes it the best tasting steak. So I'm, I'm a bone and strip guy. Casey yeah. as well. I'm a ribeye guy. But I I'm also going to put John. an asterisk next to this. Because of Allen Brothers, I am a tried and true. I love the fattiness. I love everything about the the ribeye. However, when I first tasted an Allen Brothers fillet, my mind was completely changed. For whatever reason, the Allen Brother fillets have such a great flavor. Because to Harris's point a second ago, like fillet, you know, it's very light, very delicate, simple. Why is Allen Brothers fillet so much better than any other fillet out it's, there? It's, so, so CP and I were talking about this last night. So we're we're, we're coming back into town last night, and he goes, I, I had a great fillet last week when I was in Florida uh, at uh, one of our customers." And he goes, "CP is Chris Pappas. He's our CEO for for our listeners." And that's inside. Go. That's yeah, that's, that's inside what, talk. Yeah, we call him CP. Sorry, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> there's uh, JP and CP. Yeah. There you go. Who's John Pappas as well? And there's oh. HH now too. Oh. <laughs> Harris, uh, I'm a little guy. Um, but uh, I said, he goes, it was an A.B. Angus filet. And I said, yeah, that, that is just because it's coming from that, that best plant in the best area and it's upper choice. It just has that beefy. It, it is great. Like, I'm not a filet eater, but it, neither is Chris. But, but when you have a great piece of meat, it's a great piece of meat. So, yeah, they, it, the Allen Angus filet, every time we get a customer on it, they'll pay the price because it is just so much better. One of the nice things about Allen Brothers and one of the amazing things for those of you listening that are home consumers, this is a product that anybody in the United States can purchase. Yeah. Absolutely. You can go on to allenbrothers.com yeah. 
and you can get these restaurant quality steaks at your home. Talk to us about that. It's a huge business. Yeah. So Allen Brothers has been in the B2C space, I'm going to call it 20 something years. Um, And uh, those same steaks that are in the best steakhouses, we cut for our our retail business. And uh, it's a huge part of our business. So, you know, a lot of people that will go to some of the best steakhouses and see Allen Brothers on the menu and they want to eat that same steak and cook it themselves. They will go on the website. um, You place the order. There's either next day, two day or three day ground. Um, You know, there's other all shipping options. And you, know, you can get the whole gamut you know, of, of the Allen Brothers steaks, of our Wagyu section, of our seafood, chicken. It's all there for every consumer, you know, home consumer to shop. Yeah, there's a lot of websites out there now that are selling beef. Few, if any, actually sell to the restaurants. And I'm talking to the good restaurants, the Michelin starred restaurants. So this is an opportunity for people who are at home or if you're a professional chef and you want to send your aunt or your uncle a, a beautiful piece of beef, you can do that. Yeah, it makes a wonderful gift. Just by going on the website. Harris, this has been amazing. I've learned quite a bit just in mm-hmm. the last few yeah. minutes. Thank you for joining us. Thank I'm you. so glad we were able to yeah. pin him down for for a few minutes. I'll come back. It Thank was great. You. Thank you for having Thanks me. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products we discussed in today's episode and more at chefswarehouse.com or your favorite specialty retailer.